Watch debut films from choreographers Jack Ferver and Omari Wiles as part of All Arts Dance Film Festival, Past, Present, Future, streaming free on the All Arts app and at allarts.org slash past, present, future. friends and welcome to the dance edit podcast i'm margaret fuhrer and i'm amy brandt we are editors at dance media here with a headline episode this week so as usual we'll start with a quick look at a list of recent noteworthy dance news items including two tragic shootings that have impacted the dance community then we will have a longer discussion segment unpacking a recent story about the move away from live streaming in the performing arts after much of the sector embraced live streams during the pandemic, and about how that shift back toward the in-person status quo has left many disabled arts lovers feeling excluded once again. First, though, I wanted to do a call out for next week's interview episode, which will be out on Thursday, April 27th. Um, Our guest this time is Melissa M. Young, the artistic director of Dallas Black Dance Theater. She's been with the company for decades, for 29 years now. And we had a great conversation about the mission-driven work they're doing there, how the company has been quietly fighting for equity for years. So I hope you can tune in next week. Again, that one will be out on Thursday, the 27th. Okay, now it's time for our headline rundown, beginning with two fatal mass shootings that have affected the dance community. A shooting at the Mahogany Masterpiece Dance Studio in Dadeville, Alabama, killed four people and injured 28 others on Saturday night. A group of teens had gathered at the studio for a sweet 16th birthday party. The brother of the girl celebrating her birthday, a high school senior and a local football star, was killed and her mother was among the injured. Just horrible. And I cannot believe this is reality, but it is. There's yet another shooting that happened recently. Just a few days earlier in Kentucky, a gunman opened fire at a bank on the same block as the Louisville Ballet Building. That shooting left five dead and eight injured. Louisville Ballet said on social media that nobody from their organization had been harmed, thankfully. Thank goodness. Kalakshetra, a prominent cultural institution in India famous for teaching Bharatanatyam, has been rocked by allegations that a dance professor sexually harassed a former student. Hari Padman, an assistant professor and accomplished dancer, was arrested earlier this month after a former student filed a complaint against him. At a protest of over 200 people, students at the school alleged that harassment had been going on at the institute for years and that administrators had ignored complaints. The Kalakshetra Foundation has launched an investigation and has suspended Padman, who denies the allegations. In the show notes, we have a link to the BBC's in-depth coverage of this story, because it's a complicated story. Okay, now we have some happier news, thank goodness. Uh, Academy Award winner Ariana DeBose, which is a phrase I will never tire of saying, Academy (laughs) Award winner Ariana DeBose, she will return to host the Tony Awards again this year after she brought big theater kid energy to the job last year. Uh, I'm eagerly awaiting both the memes that will inevitably arise from her performance (laughs) and also her own embracing of those memes. Because I love that after her rap from the BAFTAs went viral, she literally started selling tote bags printed with Angela Bassett did the thing. And then (laughs) 
donated the proceeds to a nonprofit that supports transgender and non-binary children, which is like the best possible response. I know. I love her. And I love how famous she is now. Like I, I just know, love seeing dancers just enjoy this kind of success. Become real superstars. Yeah. Well, not to imply that they weren't real superstars before. Become mainstream right. superstars. <laughs> Here's some more good news. Amy Seiwert has been named Associate Artistic Director of SMU and Ballet in San Francisco. Seiwert, who started her dance career with SMU and Ballet in 1999 and served as its artist-in-residence from 2008 to 2018, will work closely with Artistic Director Celia Fushil overseeing day-to-day operations. Seiwert has had her own Bay Area-based company, Amy Seiwert Imagery, since 2011 and briefly served as artistic director of Sacramento Ballet from 2018 to 2020. So I think this is great, fantastic news for SMU and Ballet. Yeah, for sure. Here is some news out of Hollywood. John M. Chu, the director of the film versions of In the Heights and the forthcoming Wicked, has signed on to direct a movie version of the musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. No word yet on really anything else about the film, but we do know that John loves dance and dancers. Never forget that he also directed Step Up 3D, so stay tuned. I can't wait to see that. Youth America Grand Prix wrapped up its 2022-23 season with its final round earlier this month. 16-year-old Fabrizio Ulloa Cornejo of Switzerland's Ballet Theatre Basel, who you may remember from this year's Prix de Lausanne, won the coveted Grand Prix. Ana Luisa Arantes of Brazil and Venezuelan dancer Daniel Alejandro Guzman, who trains in Florida, won first place in the senior division. Among the juniors, Che Yun Lee of South Korea and Jao Pedro dos Santos of Brazil won first place. And keep your eyes on 11-year-old Morgan Legan, who won this year's Hope Award. Um, lots of congrats to go around today. The Clive Barnes Awards, which honor rising talents in dance and theater, just announced its 2023 finalists. The dance category nominees are New York City Ballet's Victor Abreu, Complexion's Christian Burse, Paul Taylor's Devin Louie, and ABT's Andrew Robert. And the winner will be announced at the awards ceremony on May 22nd. Great list. The 2023 class of Guggenheim Fellows have been announced, and they include a lot of really great dance artists, including John Kinzel, Petra Cuppers, Liz Lerman, Richard Move, Meg Stewart, and Nyla Yotkin. First rate list, as usual. New research by Dance Data Project reveals that 29% of global classical ballet companies are led by women. That is actually down from 33% in the organization's previous leadership report, even though it feels like we've been hearing about lots of high profile women getting these jobs recently. Overall, it's down. Um, As ever with DDP, this new report includes a ton of useful stats and information. So we've linked the whole thing in the show notes. New York City Ballet has announced its 75th anniversary season. The season will open in September with Balanchine's full-length Jewels, and its fall season will also recreate the company's first ever program that was at City Center uh, with Concerto Barocco, Orpheus, and Symphony in C. Um, The company is also bringing back Suzanne Farrell to stage Balanchine's Zagan, which has actually been uh, renamed Errante, Uh, which she owns the rights to and is something I danced myself many times when I was part of her company. So I'm I'm kind of excited to hear that. And I believe Meryl Ashley is also coming back to stage some works on the company. 
Um, the spring season will feature some of the company's more contemporary repertoire, including world premieres by Justin Peck and the company's new artist in residence, Alexei Rotmansky, Amy Hall Garner, and principal dancer Tyler Peck. Here is some news that I know delighted our co-host, Courtney. Rogers the Musical, a live production of the formerly fictional Avengers musical featured in the pilot episode of the streaming miniseries Hawkeye, will premiere at Disney Whoa. California Adventure this summer. Let me just untangle that for a second. <laughs> there's a lot going on there. So Hawkeye, a show that takes place in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, its pilot included a performance of one epic musical number from a hypothetical show called Rogers the Musical. At that point, the show did not exist outside of that one song. <laughs> now, Rogers the Musical has been fleshed out into a 30-minute real live stage show chronicling Steve Rogers' journey to becoming Captain America. And that's what they are about to debut at California Adventure. So are you with me? Did that make sense? <laughs> okay, I think so. Sounds like fun, whatever it is. And finally, the dance world said goodbye to three incredible artists recently. Dancer and actor Valda Setterfield, who performed for Merce Cunningham and formed a vibrant, creative partnership with her husband, David Gordon, passed away on April 9th. French dancer and choreographer Pierre Lacotte, who devoted much of his career to reviving lost ballets, has died at the age of 91. And choreographer Jennifer Muller, a former principal with Limone Dance Company and founder of Jennifer Muller The Works, has died at age 78. A hard month for the dance world, yeah. Yeah. So that is the end of our headline rundown this episode. But please don't forget to check out the Dance Media Events calendar as well, because it has a lot more information about all kinds of dance world events. So to see the full list and to add your own events to it, if you'd like, head to dancemediacalendar.com. It wouldn't be Mother's Day weekend without Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater at NJ Pack. On Friday, May 12th, and Sunday, May 14th, witness the New Jersey premiere of two new pieces, In a Sentimental Mood and Are You In Your Feelings. Saturday, May 13th, features a night of classic work choreographed by Alvinelli himself. And all three programs conclude with a rousing finale of the beloved favorite, Revelations. Get your tickets today at njpac.org or ticketmaster.com. That's N-J-P-A-C. Okay, moving on to our discussion segment. So during shutdowns, we talked a lot about pandemic silver linings. And one of them was that the surge of virtual class and performance offerings made dance much more accessible to people with disabilities and chronic illnesses. And dance artist Jackie Caligridis described the profound effects of that shift in an excellent essay for Dance Magazine. Um, that was back in September of 2020. Wow, it does not feel like that long ago. I know. Now, with live performances pretty much back to normal, those digital options have begun to dwindle. This week, the New York Times published a piece about how most performing organizations have cut way back on live streams and other digital programs for a range of reasons, which we'll get into. And many arts lovers with disabilities and chronic illnesses are feeling that loss really acutely. So a lot of questions to think about here, but the crux of the problem is what would need to change? What resources and shifts in perspective would be required for the performing arts community to maintain and build on the digital options developed during the pandemic instead of 
eliminating them? Like, is there a way to keep moving down that path toward accessibility instead of reverting to pre-pandemic norms? It's such a good question. You know, for a while, every company was was exploring digital offerings, uh, virtual seasons, dance films, classes, meet and greets, because the pandemic forced them to get creative and invest in technology and provide something to their communities and to their artists, as far as like an income. And, you know, while I guess it hasn't completely gone away in, in some, in some ways, uh, it has really tapered off. And I feel like now, at least in the ballet universe, which is what I mostly kind of pay attention to at, at point, you know, I'm really only seeing kind of mostly like the big budget companies continue with, with a digital mm-hmm. type season. And, you know, you might see like an archive of past virtual performances or live streams, but um, investing in new digital se- seasons feels like it's been relegated to like an extra or a plus mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. Uh, which kind of surprised me. Although I me guess- too. There are, of course, still digital subscription services like Marquee TV, where you can access and stream performances. Um, but, you know, does your local company participate in, in something like that, you know? And same with online classes. They still exist, but the plethora of choices that we all had during the, the pandemic has gone down big time. Yeah. So yeah, I think there are a lot of reasons why it's probably very expensive. Mm-hmm. And they've probably re- reallocating funds back to their live performance seasons. You know, um, I'd be interested to see how that like fits into their budgets and all of that. And then there's contractual issues as well. You know, uh, the New York Times said uh, a lot of contracts call for paying artists and rights holders more money mm-hmm. to do live streams. Um, I think a lot of companies are afraid that if they offer a live stream or a digital version of a live performance that people will opt out of going to a live performance Mm -hmm. when they're trying to get people to come back. And this is just me, but I think like, especially when it comes to class offerings, I think there's a little sense of burnout, Mm -hmm. Zoom fatigue, you know, um, maybe there just isn't enough staffing to go around. I think there were a lot of staffing shakeups. Um, So these are, I guess, some possible reasons why we may not be seeing as many virtual offerings. But unfortunately, as a result, it leaves out this really critical group of people, audience members who love dance and want to participate. And there was a um, quote in the New York Times story uh, from a professor at Vanderbilt University who said that, you know, the decisions to cut back on streaming options were not made with disabled people in mind. And, you know, she's, this person is probably Right. In most cases, I would think. And and that's, it's interesting that you bring up that quote. You were saying before that you felt surprised that this cutback was happening. And I was too. One out of every four people in the United States has a disability of some kind. This is a huge audience. Like mm-hmm. equity practices are incredibly important, but this is also good business practice. And it doesn't seem like organizations are thinking about that as they're cutting back these digital options. Um, one thing that Jackie Caligridis brought up in her Dance Magazine essay was that virtual options were not only more accessible to disabled artists, but also allowed them to be seen in a way that mm-hmm. most traditional models did not. And I think the hope was that companies and schools would then notice like, hey, we have more disabled dancers participating in our classes with a virtual option. Look, they're there on screen. There they are. And that something right. similar could happen yeah. in, in performances. 
and that mm-hmm. that recognition would help level the playing field. But it does not seem like that is happening. And I think that is a critical misstep on the part of a lot of these organizations. Yeah. Acknowledging, as you said, that, yeah, this type of programming is expensive and challenging. There are a lot of logistical mm-hmm. hurdles. But now that we know it's possible, now that it has been done, taking it away feels especially just wrong. Yeah, I know. It's like we learned so much about what was possible during the pandemic. And, you know, what do we do with that information? How do we how do we take it with us and going forward? And and what I also think, you know, is interesting, because there are so many dance organ- organizations are really making in- investments in other kinds of accessible programming mm-hmm. that revolve mm-hmm. around live classes and live performance. You know, there are incredible dance classes to serve those with Parkinson's disease. There are sensory-friendly performance options everywhere now. I mean, it's really wonderful to see. You know, the article mentions Lincoln Center's Moments program that offers live performances to those with dementia and their caregivers. Um, I know, like, Scottish Ballet has this incredible dance health program with tons and tons of programming. But it it does kind of feel unfortunate to abandon the virtual stage after Mm -hmm. spending so much time investing and learning about it. Um, Amy, you just basically made the point that I had been trying to and failed to make before, which is that it's not that there aren't (laughs) lots of good intentions in dance around accessibility. It's just that streaming and other digital options are not being seen as accessibility efforts, which they are inevitably always in part. They're just not being thought of that way. And partly for that reason, not being invested in as heavily. A live option going someplace in person isn't always isn't always easy for someone who has a chronic illness or who has a disability. The theaters may not have ramps or elevators and you could invest in tickets and then not feel well the day of the show or you know theaters have dropped their mask and covid vaccine mm-hmm. mandates COVID so there's that that you factor, have to yeah. right. Another thing that that Jackie Caligertis mentioned in her dance magazine essay um, is that there are a lot of financial pressures that these dancers and dance lovers are under. Many of them are relying on, you know, supplemental security income benefits or paying large amounts of their income towards their medical expenses. So there's also that, which I think virtual seasons were more accessible that way as well. Mm -hmm. So accessibility in multiple senses of the word. Yeah. Yeah. Or like just like the headache of of making sure you're getting an accessible seat when you're ordering tickets. and Yeah, you know, I think the argument against continuing streaming that I'm sort of tired of hearing is, oh, but nothing can replace the energy of in-person class or in-person performance, which, okay, but if those options are just not options for you, and that is the case for a sizable chunk of the population, does that mean then you should just be excluded? Because that's sort of the subtext of that argument, whether people mean it that way or mm-hmm. not. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, as we were sort of saying before, it seems like most dance organizations have good intentions that this is an issue of like, first of all, awareness, and second of all, resources, figuring out how to allocate limited funds. But I also think, like, as is often the case, that those two things are connected. And the more that we talk about this, the more likely it is that Mm -hmm. money will be directed toward those kinds of initiatives. Yeah. So. Yeah. Let's hope so. Yeah. Anyway, in the show notes, we have links to both the Dance Magazine essay from 2020 and the recent New York Times article. Please do give them a read. They're both really great. 
All right, that's it for us this week. Thanks everyone for joining. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Bye everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. 